Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name, as ever, is Jonathan McRae. Uh, if you would like to contact us on the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science, way more than we should be. Um, now, coming up on this week's programme, we've talked about ageing quite a bit and what ageing is. We're going we're to delve into that a bit, but we're going to speak to a researcher called Dr. Meng Wang, who has been looking at blood and ageing in our blood. His research found that formaldehyde is this waste product that we that builds up in our blood and may be one of the reasons why we age. Uh, he'll be telling us all about his research and whether or not it's possible to theoretically reverse or stop aging uh, if we manage to find a way to clear it. So really exciting uh, research coming up. Um, first, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me uh, is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and science communicator, Catherine McGuinness. You're both very welcome. Uh, Catherine, our first story has to do with cardiac arrest and, and pro- heart problems with the heart and recreational drugs. That's it, exactly. So uh, a fortnight back in April 2021 in across, I think it was 39 hospitals in France, doctors took urine samples from any patient admitted to the cardiac ICU. And they tested for any drug use at all. So out of about 1,500 people, 11% had tested positive for different drugs, for marijuana, uh, ecstasy, cocaine and so on. And after this, looking at their prognosis, it was found that anyone who had taken recreational drugs and had been admitted to the unit were nine times more likely to pass away or require emergency interaction. And if you had taken two or more drugs, you, that went up to 12 times more likely to pass away or have an emergency in- intervention needed. And the reason for this is the recreational drugs that we were looking at, you know, what that happens to you when you take them. So your blood pressure goes up, your uh, heart rate goes up, your body temperature rises as well, and then this puts a pressure on the heart and increases its needs for oxygen. So the heart comes under pressure and you're more likely to have a cardiac incident then. This is what's known as a buzzkill science story. Um, <laughs> it's a cautionless, yeah, caution, cautionary tale. Tale, that's um, it. So, nine times more likely to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this mortality rate, how does it compare? Like, what are the chances of? Because I mean, the devil's in the detail, right? You know, it's, but but genuinely, like, what sort of rates do you have of mortality of people going into the hospital? Are they generally quite low anyway? They're generally quite low anyway, and this is a significant increase mm. uh, seen in anyone who had taken recreational drugs, and to the point that the study has led um, medical um, practitioners into discussing the need to have some sort of drug screening when people are admitted into cardiac ICUs. Because of the people who tested positive for the drugs, only half admitted, just over half admitted to taking them. Yeah. And they, and it was found that anyone who had admitted to taking them, they are, uh, the practitioners knew what they were dealing with. Yeah. So that the interventions were more successful. So that's a really um, useful um, point of interest for listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are taking drugs, let the doctor know. There is a doctor privilege. Yeah. That's it. They, they, they can't tell the, the guardee if, you, <laughs> if you've taken drugs. It's really important that yeah. you do let your doctor, the practitioners of the people in the ICU, know that you have taken drugs if you find yourself Absolutely. in a situation. Out of interest, um, it, 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 did, is there any data in this particular paper as to whether or not that's a, a regular thing? Like is 11% um, uh, no, th- this is, is a lot? This is, this is one of the first studies on this. Yeah. So, um, 
it's it's not routinely routinely done, and there's different reasons. So it's the costs, it's patient confidentiality. Yeah. Um, but what uh, an editorial linked to this paper by uh, doctors from St. Barts in London have said that this is obviously something that is necessary, and it's put up a quite an interesting conversation about where where, where should we start screening these patients when they come in anyway for drug use, whether they've admitted to it or not. Um, the problem with that is the cost of it. Also, if the speed you, of it. The speed of it. Also, just targeting screening. So you, you might uh, kind of have bias there where you're thinking, well, we really should be targeting and screening people under the age of 40. But in, in this study, there were people up to the age of 65 mm. who were taking recreational drugs and then presenting with uh, heart problems. Um, one final question on this, and that is, did they have a, a was there a grade with regards to the type of drug and the more likely they would end up um, having more serious problems? Like you mentioned marijuana and ecstasy, uh, cocaine. These are all very different drugs with very different effects on the body. Yeah. And this study wasn't a causal relationship study. Yeah. So it was really just a kind of let's see what happens. So it, it's a more of a kicking off point, but there's definitely a lot more to be seen and done here. But it, it, it didn't give details of, it was just any drug that, yeah, yeah. It, it gave illegal. a breakdown of the different uh, drugs that were found that that, that were found. Right. So when it was everything from marijuana up to opioids. The only thing we, I suppose, we ourselves could get out of it is if you are in a uh, ICU, tell the doctors what absolutely you, what you've done. Um, Shane, our second story uh, has to do with um, Pink Floyd, and this is a really interesting story. I think that caught the population's uh, attention. Yeah, this is work from Berkeley in California. Scientists have reconstructed Pink Floyd's "Another Brick in the Wall." Um, by monitoring the uh, brains of people that were listening to it while they were having an operation. So these people were having, 29 people were listening to uh, the song whilst they were having um, a necessary operation for epilepsy. And they're very generous that they were willing to also take part in this research study. People are incredible when they're at their sickest. They still say yes to these things, even well, though they're not going to benefit from them. Even even, even more generous to have to listen to Pink Floyd. Go on. <laughs> so what they did was they, they had all these electrodes on the, on the different parts of the people's brains. And they were able to, um, to kind of take that information, use an AI to... Um, sort of decode it and then encode what the AI thinks the song would look like, just based on the brain signal, right? So so not any auditory signal. So no. they looked inside the brain, um, presumably in the area associated with hearing. Does um, it say where? Uh, well, no, it, it says there was more activity on the right side of the brain, but they didn't give any specific parts of the brain that was, was lighting up, as the, the brains people say. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the brain people. Shane, Shane's sweating here as a physicist. <laughs> here in the story. Um, so so, um, so they, 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 they weren't having an MRI. They no. were having, um, they, they, they were like electrodes in, inside the brain. Yes. Um, and they were reading signal and then feeding it back to a machine that then tried to, uh, reverse engineer the song. Yeah, um, exactly. The reverse engineering the song. It's incredibly complex. You think of the signal that the brain would be giving out, right? It's like first, all of the mess. All of the mess. And then all the other stuff that your brain is doing to keep yeah. you alive, etc. Like it's not just listening to Pink Floyd. It's doing a lot of things. And they were able to uh, to like basically reconstruct the song. Now, amazing. It sounds weird, right? So, like you'd want to be. Well, weird. Pink Floyd does sound weird. Go but on. This is particularly <laughs> weird. Let's let's hear it. Oh, 
I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, so you, 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 for, the, for the real Pink Floyd fans, they will, if they listen carefully to that, hear the all in all bit, right? Which is the, the famous line of the song. That bit there. That bit there. The bit we all love, except play the play the play the decode a bit. Yeah. Okay. I can sort of. I can. I mean. It's like it's like if you you know when you got a song and you've forgotten the words or you're underwater. It's like, <laughs> or it's, or if you tell your child two plus two is, and then they say uh, and look at you with a blank face and you say four 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 four. Look four. Yeah, this four. is that's, incredible. That's, that's I thought the level of science we're talking about. I thought about you'd here. be all over this story because yeah. it's an AI story and it is incredible. This is the first shot. This group in the past, what they've done is they've looked to see like what does the brain do when it's when you're talking or it hears words so they're able to reconstruct words yeah. but it sounded very robotic like <laughs> so, <laughs> yes yeah, but this, but this, this is, is different. Less so what they're saying it's more musical what's the brain doing when it hears music and so that might allow someone who's lost their their voice due to neurological conditions to not just speak but to have the music and the tone in their voice that we'd associate with somebody like you know it's, it's why we all sound differently because our voices are quite musical now what would be really interesting, though, would be if they put Roger Waters, the lead singer of Pink Floyd, Good into the into the machine and see, like, is his would his signal be much clearer because he knows and sings the song really well? Ooh, he does. Because maybe the person who's doing who would do maybe they're they're just not very musical. <laughs> That's true, but he'd also need to have gone for this epilepsy operation. He may not want to sign Let's up. Let's give for him it. epilepsy and see what happens. Uh, right, our third story. Our Ethics third committee. Story. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in a, um, uh, mischievous mood. Uh, our third story is really interesting. It's to do with frogs. Frogs mm-hmm. uh, that Catherine glow, but not yeah. to us. Yes. So um, what we're talking about is biofluorescence. As opposed to bioluminescence, which or are people. phosphorescence. Oh, we're not we're not going down that road now. We haven't got the time. <laughs> <laughs> so biofluorescence. Uh, what you have are fluorophores, which are chemicals in the animals or the the organism cell, and this can absorb the light in the environment and then readmit it at a different wavelength. And the use of this, we, we have been aware of this for a long time in lots of different types of animals, including the fur of flying squirrels, for instance. Um, but it was only since 2017 that scientists have actually started looking at frogs and realising frogs do this. And this study has shown that the, we, there's a lot more frogs that do this than we had previously thought. Now, I mean, when you think of either luminescence or fluorescence, you always think of aquatic animals, you think of, you know, deep sea animals. Yeah. Um, it's very few land animals. 
that can do this. And there's different uses. So you could be uh, using it to hunt your prey or to get away from predators for... Uh, why would, for I mean, how can luminescence help you get away from... You mean warn them off? Warn them off, yes. Okay, yeah. yeah, kind of... So, so, I mean, you have a flash. Do, do frogs know they do this? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> they've got an inkling. No, um, it, 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 they, they employ it. They, they employ it right, definitely. Okay. Now, the frogs we're looking at in this particular study, uh, so these are in South America. And what we see is when they biofluoresce, under blue light, it comes in different colours. It's, it's orange, it's red, it's green. Mm. And it seems to be linked with mating. Okay. And that's that's the use of it in, in, in these frogs. Um, the, the levels go from anywhere between 2% to 90%. So you have very, very low levels of uh, fluorescence to very high. So and like, like if, if you were to shine a, a blue light on them, like would they literally, would they look like a, Someone to turn them on, like a yeah, like a, a neon like, like, frog. Like a, yeah, like like a little night light you'd have maybe in the kids' room or whatever. Wow. Yeah, and and the reason why they don't think it's used for anything other than mating is because of the levels. It it's not a very effective way of communicating. Okay. And also, uh, does it take energy? Is, does it take the frog's energy to produce? Absolutely, it's an active thing. Like it's, it's an not, active okay, thing, wow. and also it, it's it's regularly usually only one part of the body. And so, for instance, with the frogs here, the males are croaking to attract mate. And yeah, it's it's, it's under the chest. Is, is This is no. where it's coming from. But you were asking earlier about predators. There, there's a shrimp that throws up fluorescent puke to get away from predators as well. So, yeah. you know, multiple, Ni- multiple uses. Nice trick. Mm. Nice trick. Um, Shane, our final story um, has to do with plastic. Yeah, and turning it into soap, right? Um This is great. It's a great story and I'm surprised that nobody's done it before and it's published in Science this week. Plastics are made up of these long chains with a carbon backbone. And chemically speaking, they're not a million miles away from so-called fatty acids, which are also carbon chains. They're shorter and they're one of the basic ingredients of soap, right? Something called saponification, which every Leavenstar chemistry student will will, uh, will know about. You add a NaOH or a base to to your fatty acid, and you can you can uh, you can produce a soap. So there was a guy in um, Virginia Tech, Professor Lute, to give him his name, who was uh, thinking, why can't I just you know take plastic waste and chop it up and make soap from it, as opposed to it just going in landfill, which is where eighty percent of all plastic actually goes. Mm-hmm. Very little is recycled, and uh, he was inspired at Christmas by looking at his log fire as he realised that wood uh, in the fire is cellulose it's also long chains of carbon and it shortens as it burns as part of the the burning process eventually it goes and turns into little molecules that are gaseous or gaseous and it, it, it just kind of floats off into the air so he said could we do that with plastic could we heat them up chop up the, the long chains of plastic but not chop them up too short so you just need the, the Goldilocks length right so they built a special oven and it can do that. It heats it up, but doesn't heat it up too much. And they're able to produce soap. Now, it, it looks like pea-coloured soap, so it's probably not going to sell just yet. But uh, And they are also saying this is not licensed for us all to start just like, you know, using plastic even more. Um, uh, but they're saying it could be interesting. It could be a way to use some of the plastic that otherwise would go into no, landfill. It's not. It's an interesting story. It is. Um, but it is absolutely not a solution to anything. No, except all. cleanliness, maybe. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> For a tiny, tiny um, proportion of the population, possibly. The, 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 I mean, it's a good story. I wonder, like, what the use is for each of these researchers in, in doing this work and publicising the work because 
realistically, we need much, much bigger, much more practical um, uh, applications of plastic recycling. Yeah, but it's a lot of these things. It's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, you just need it's to cute. stop using plastic is the only real way around uh, it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Walk down the aisle of a supermarket and see when we're going to be doing that soon. Mm. Um, right, uh, Dr. Shane Burke from UCD and science communicator Catherine McGuinness, thank you as always. Now, we tend to think of time as going in one direction. We're born, we grow old, we die. But that is possibly naive. Researchers are looking at the possibility of potentially reversing the aging process. Dr. Meng Wang is a clinician scientist at hematology at Cornell University. He led a study looking at this. He joins me now. Um, when we talk about aging at Meng, what exactly are we talking about? Uh, well, aging of the blood uh, is actually a very well-defined uh, process. Uh, we know that as we get older, our blood cells become less functional. We make less of it. And essentially, it's just this decline, uh, and that is what define as aging. And, and and would we associate aging of the blood with aging of the body? I mean, is that the thing that makes us older, the fact that our blood isn't as good? That's exactly right. Uh, we have this association of changes that is linked to the passage of time. And in most of us, the changes in our blood uh, occurs along with the natural decline with other parts of our body. And altogether, we coin this term aging. Uh, but of course, when we try to understand exactly what it is about it on the cellular molecular level, that's when it gets really complex. Yeah, because uh, obviously on, on the outside, we get wrinkly and so on. Um, uh, our our um, bodies uh, get slower and uh, and we are, lose cognitive function, etc., etc. But in terms of the actual aging what what what's causing this and, and um is it that all of our organs age differently or is this all linked together well that is the you know million dollar question really you know what is causing these changes that we can observe and that we observe for thousands of years well we in terms of what actually causes aging we know relatively actually few well-defined causes uh, and there's a lot of research in this area uh, for example, we know that inflammation, which is a response our body towards injury, if you have too much inflammation, then that can accelerate the onset of these changes that we can see in aging. So inflammation could be one cause. Um, another cause that uh, is what we essentially what we've been researching is uh, damage to our DNA. Uh, DNA being the material in our cells, all of our cells, that encodes genes and instructs how our cells behave. So we think DNA, we don't want any DNA damage. And so, um, and just one final question before we start talking about the, the research. When we talk about um, aging of cells, what exactly does that look like? Whether it's blood cells or other, or other things, is it is it sort of fraying um, at, at the edges? Is it... Uh, is it not being able to get rid of waste? What What do we mean by, like, if you looked at an old cell versus a, a young cell, what would the differences be? Mm. Yes. So in so that, that is a really good question. And what we've realized now more than ever is that the definition of aging for one particular cell in the body has to be different for another. Hmm. Uh, for me, as a specialist in blood, as a hematologist, I can say that 
the key blood stem cells. And these are the cells that give rise to all the functional blood cells in our body. As these blood stem cells age, well, for a start, they can't make all the different blood cells as efficiently as a young blood stem cells. So we know that it can give rise to more, let's say, certain types of immune cells like neutrophils, macrophages, less well to uh, the type that you need to make antibodies like B cells and T cells. So this is a very uh, well observed change. The so other, just, on, uh, just on that, the, the stem cells that we produce, um, say, for example, in bone marrow, the um, is that are they constantly distributed around the body? Do they make every cell in our body? Is that a constant like river of stem cells that that make every skin cell, every hair cell, or, or whatever? Is that all coming from the same source of the the bone marrow creating these stem cells as we're adults? Ah, so each uh, different types of organ and tissue uh, may have their own source of stem cells. Uh, right. So at one point uh, when we were an embryo, yes, we had a, the, the master stem cell, if you like, that then give rise to everything. But from the moment we're born, we think that pretty much that there are different stem cell populations and they remain restricted to only giving rise to cells to supply that organ or tissue. Oh, really? So blood stem cell. So, mm. the, so the sort of like um, semi-differentiated uh, cells that are kind of one step towards differentiating, but but are not quite yet the functioning um, organ cells or or um, skin cells. Yes, yes, that's okay. a very good way to uh, to think of it. Yes. Okay, so um, let's talk about your research. So um, you, you you started off, you were looking at um, in mice, um, which have a, a sort of a two-year lifespan. You were looking at what made them old and uh, and what was going on inside. So can you tell us a little bit about that research and, and what you found? Yes, uh, I think the major question we wanted to do really was to get to the crux of what drives the aging of our blood. And we were working on the hypothesis that perhaps uh, too much DNA damage could accelerate this aging process. Uh, now, one of the difficulties uh, and the prerequisites of this research is to actually identify, well, what causes DNA damage throughout life. Uh, you and I, you know, every day we live our lives, we do our work, we go to sleep, we have food, but what actually damaged our DNA? And we identified a chemical produced in all of our cells as part of the metabolism of our cells. Uh, and this chemical is called formaldehyde. Formaldehyde? You mean um, the the embalming fluid? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so uh, anyone who's gone to the Natural History Museum and seen jars containing specimens of um, animals or creatures, they they would have seen formaldehyde in action there, uh, and that's what you think of exactly the embalming fluids. Uh, but what is uh, surprising, and that was based on research we did a few years ago, is that actually our body produces high quantities of this toxic chemical called huh. formaldehyde. And uh, really, the danger from formaldehyde is that uh, because it can just attack all the different chemicals and molecules in your body, uh, it can really cause damage to our DNA. So in this research, what we did was we had a animal model, a mouse, and we uh, artificially increased the level of formaldehyde produced uh, in these mice. And we did that by genetically modifying uh, the mice so that it can no longer uh, detoxify the formaldehyde. Right. And 
uh, to do. And when we did this, we uh, found a very, very striking uh, finding, which is when we looked at the blood and then the blood stem cells, they had dramatically aged. Wow. So to give you some, yeah. So to give you some context, uh, the natural lifespan of a mouse about two years old. And when we looked at our experimental mice, which was only about eight weeks old, the blood stem cells already looked like they were from a two-year-old mouse. So that is a very dramatic acceleration of the aging. Yeah, I mean, as a as an analog for aging, how good is the you know is that as a as an indicator that the state of the blood cell? Do you think that's a good uh, analog for it? Well, we 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 wanted to be really rigorous, so yeah. we asked you that question. You know, what, what, what comes back to well, how do we know their age? I mean, did, did mean the mice? That? By the way, did the mice look really old? Like I know you can, you can tell. Like well, if you know if there's you know, like I remember there was one experiment a long time ago where they took two mice together and swapped old blood for new blood, and and the younger mouse got older looking, and the younger older mouse got younger looking, right? Yes, so, so some of these mice actually did have other uh, features of what we call old age. So some, some of the mice, when the mice get old, they actually get some graying of the hair as well. And we did see some of that. Um, uh, although we, we weren't able to focus on all aspects of uh, aging completely. Right. Um, so, you know, how do we rigorously know, uh, carry out experiments to know that these cells are aged? Well, we actually use five or six different sort of molecular techniques uh, and, and they all are based on this principle that, look, we know on the molecular level what an old blood stem cell look like. So let's map out these processes of young stem cells and do they look the same? Mm. So some of these might be the length of telomeres, which is the very specific region of your DNA at the end of your chromosomes that we know naturally get shorter as we age. Yeah. And when we looked at that in the blood stem cells of our mutant mice, they had shortened much faster rate uh, than their normal counterparts. Wow. Um, okay, yeah, so, so, so just you, you, you um, stopped the natural restriction of formal, formaldehyde, stopped the, the mice from being able to clear that, and they seem, certainly the blood, and they seem to, to get older, certainly under the microscope. Um, what about if you... Um, basically got rid of the formaldehyde. Is there any way you could accelerate the, 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 and, and clear the formaldehyde? Have you done that? Well, that's what we would love to do, and that's what my research is focusing right now. Wow. Uh, I mean, essentially, the question now is, look, we've identified this chemical producing all of us that could potentially be driving aging process. So if we now know exactly which metabolic process gives rise to the formaldehyde, then can we do something about it? Uh, and then we'll be able to conduct the experiment exactly as you described, which is if we can now reduce the amount of formaldehyde, does that potentially slow down the aging process? Or I suspect because aging is complex, there are going to be more than one causes of aging. Well, we are, we are not going to have this magic bullet. Uh, if we get rid of formaldehyde, the mouse will live forever. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect what we might be able to do is within the natural lifespan off the mouse and potentially, you know, eventually in, in, in people, we make sure that we live a more healthier life. So we s slow the aging-related decline. In yeah. Function. Uh, do, do we have um, therapies that are already FDA approved that naturally clear formaldehyde for other reasons? Or um, or do we know of that? Is I mean, is there potentially a therapy out there where you can look at a patient, uh, patient population and say, what did their blood look like? Is that 
do we you know mm. is that is that a thing yet so at the moment no yeah. uh, we don't have any drugs on the market that we know definitely uh, can reduce formaldehyde i think that's partly because this research is so recent yeah. um that we haven't had just had time to develop the drugs but there are several uh, promising uh, drugs acting by different mechanisms that could reduce the level of formaldehyde uh, but at the moment you know they are really in very experimental stages this is really, really exciting. I wanted to finish up very quickly talking about cancer. Um, is there a relation to um, cancer levels uh, in mice or in human populations and, uh, you know, um, poorer quality or, or older blood? Is, is this, this link between formaldehyde blood and cancer there or, or has it not, that not yet been found or, or has it not been tested? Yes. So it's very good that you bring up the topic of cancer um, because... Cancer, of course, is also driven by DNA damage. So in our mouse model, we actually know, we have observed an increased uh, incidence of blood cancers as well. And we uh, suspect that's because too much formaldehyde causing DNA damage, and that causes DNA mutations that drives cancer. Uh, so uh, formaldehyde here is a molecule that can actually increase the risk of both cancer and aging. I imagine you'll be getting um, calls from Brian Johnson uh, any day now, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the the billionaire who is um, doing multiple experiments to to stay the same age. Um, but uh, regardless, this is really fascinating uh, uh, science and uh, very exciting as well. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, that is uh, Dr. Meng Wang. He's from the University of Cornell. Thank you so much. Real pleasure to be on the show. I have to say, I love that sort of a piece where uh, you dig in a bit into the makings of things and how things work in the body. That's my favorite sort of future-proof piece. Love to get your thoughts on that. Um, and if you've been following this story of Brian Johnson, um, he's this billionaire guy. Um, I've actually interviewed him uh, a number of years back. Um, he is trying to live forever and he has been spending, I think it's a million dollars a year on trying to stay young. So he is a one-man band of self-experimentation and he is doing everything. And I mean everything from uh, very carefully monitoring the nutrients to certain amounts of, uh, of exercise every day to trying to maintain an erection for three and a half hours during sleep. Yes, this is what young people have. They've erections for three and a half hours. Well, young men have erections. I think also women I know that sounds strange. I'm willing for someone to correct me on that, but I think also women. Um, uh, when you're when you're young and uh, virile and twenty something, your erections last for longer. And as you get older, your erections, while sleep, um, reduce in time. This is what he's saying. Um, I haven't looked at the science on it, so <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm saying Brian has been saying it. Anyway, um, he's been doing all of this work to try and stay younger, and he says that he is biologically like way younger than he uh, should be. But he really kind of looks his age. <laughs> he really does look his age, if not a little weird. Um, and I, uh, no judgment, no shade on the man. But it, he, um, it, it, it's, he, he dresses in a very space-agey kind of way and he poses for these photographs in a very um, unusual, androgynous, sort of sci-fi sort of way. So, I mean, he, he lends um, his own enthusiasm to this uh, vanity project and it is 
quite the vanity project. Um, love to know your thoughts if you've been following this man. Um, I, I mean, to, to be honest, I think he probably will find out a, a bunch of stuff that we didn't know. Um, even though N equals one, it's a one-person study. I think you know the amount of money and uh, um, and science he is doing on himself. Even though you might say, "Well, is the science well designed?" I'd say he, we will learn a bit from this uh, singular man's attempt to stay young. Um, staying relevant is, is also a challenge uh, when you get older, and I'm not sure he's managed to do that. But. Um, if you if you don't know him, there's a BBC article on him. He's this basically he's staying. He's certainly staying young by staying in the in the media spotlight. Um, have a look at him and let us know what you make of the Brian Johnson saga because it seems like rich people are just going, either they're being more publicly crazy, or they're being more, um, or they're generally just being a bit more crazy. Like the idea of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, two heads of giant technology companies facing each other off in a boxing match all of the elon musk stuff um what was that guy uh peter thiel he had some interesting stuff going on uh it's all just a bit mad um anyway this guy um brian johnson interesting character and he's trying to stay young so i thought um I talk about it for a bit. Love to know your thoughts. You can email us science at newstalk.com. Right. Uh, other people emailed us uh, in response to last week's program, which I really enjoyed, actually. We were speaking to Erika Benke, who's a, a journalist in Finland. She was doing a story on nuclear waste, and they basically built this. Um, it's like a grave for nuclear spent rods. So they have a couple of nuclear facilities in Finland, and both of the f- facilities agreed to put their stuff in the same sort of um, grave and so they built this giant grave where you get the rod and you encase it in metal and then you put it in this clay that doesn't allow water in and basically it stays there for 100,000 years and some people thought it was a good idea some people did not I think it's not a bad idea I, John, I genuinely think if we pick one spot that nobody nobody really wants to go to like the Burren the, uh, Marais is looking at me everyone says the Burren and who has it said it out loud this week uh, Patrick Frayne I think in the Irish Times he said no one's no one's really going to stand up and say the burn is just rock. It's just it's it. so let's all just t- take the top off the burn, put a whole lot of nuclear waste in it, and put the top back on. And then we could have everyone send their nuclear waste to us. We would be absolutely loaded, and everyone would say, "Oh yeah, the burn's great." Have you been? Yeah, I will. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. That's the deal with the burn. If you're from <laughs> from anywhere around there, I'm sure you're not going to like the idea. But um, but okay. So maybe not the burn. Maybe somewhere in Arizona. I don't know. But the the idea that we should throw the nuclear um, idea out, I just don't think it. We need nuclear. I think we need more nuclear because we're not going to get to where we need to with solar and wind. That's just my thoughts. Um, someone says send the nuclear waste directly into the sun. That person didn't listen to the whole item where we realised that, that is a technically impossible thing to do right now. We can't, but it's not a bad idea. If we could, if we if it didn't take loads of fossil fuels to do that, in which case it negates the point of having nuclear fuel in the first place. Um, EC says, this is the so-called green energy and what has to be done with the waste? News Talk has been promoting the onset of nuclear energy for years. No way for nuclear. I think nuclear is a great idea. I think it's unfortunate that we have to have waste, but I do think if we're looking at two evils, one being getting rid of spent nuclear rods and the other being the imminent and increasing destruction of our planet due to the burning of fossil fuels, which I think this week goes into, is this week the the worst week in the history of humankind in terms of burning uh, oil? Coal is at a peak. 
Like we're supposed to be going the other way. This week, I believe this week is the worst week. So we need other things. And I think nuclear is a, should be a big part of it. I don't think it is going to be for political reasons and uh, emotional reasons, but I think it's a mistake. So I am one of those people who is promoting the onset of nuclear energy. Another says, sweeping fuel rods under the carpet and dumping nuclear waste into the sea. Crazy, crazy, crazy. The earth has limits. Yes. Putting nuclear waste in the sea is a stupid idea and we should not do that because the sea is very dynamic and um, and even just digging under the sea, there's loads of reasons why putting stuff under the sea or putting waste into the sea is a terrible idea. Sweeping fuel rods under the carpet for 100,000 years, I'm okay with that. I think in 100,000 years, people will figure out how to get energy again from that. They'll be mining those spent fuel rods is my guess. But 100,000 years is a reasonable amount of time for us to say, I'll be long dead and anyone I know will be long dead, so screw those guys. That's my thoughts on it. Um, we were also speaking last week about space travel and uh, we had Amy Ross, who is a NASA spacesuit designer. Um, someone says, as the human is the weak point in the mission, when can we expect to have a fully autonomous robotic mission? Well, we've had loads of uh, autonomous missions, um, but landing on the moon and taking like for example all of the mars missions so far have been fully autonomous fully robotic we've put uh, rovers and we've put um even a flipping drone on on the surface of mars and that's really cool um and some people would say we don't need humans to go anywhere anymore i think that's true it is true i mean a lot of the astronomers would say it it's just true but it's kind of cool putting humans in space anyway and if people think it's kind of cool, we're going to probably spend money on it. And I think, if say you took all the humans out of space travel, um, the public would not really be as inspired. I don't think we need our we need our Apollo. I think we need you know people on this. We need Captain, what's his name, Captain Space. You know, not Captain Birdsheimer Rays. No, the <laughs> the guy who Chris Chris Hadfield. We need Chris Hadfield of the world to inspire us. And if we have no one in space, no one going to the moon, then I think people will kind of go, yeah, I'm a bit bored of that. I, I just, I mean, scientists would love it, but I just don't think they get the money from the people who aren't scientists. That's my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. Um, Joan says, is there a minimum height requirement to be an astronaut? Excellent question, Joan. Have we researched the answer to that? Let's just wait. Let's just have everybody wait on the podcast, shall we? Oh, God. All right. Don't. All right. I'll tell you what. I'll give you the next question. We'll come back to it. Uh, Fiona says, is it possible to survive in space without a spacesuit? Good Lord, Fiona, no, it is not. It is the opposite of possible. Um, a lot of things happen. As we heard in that piece, actually, your your body will start to swell because of the lack of pressure, because pressure is pushing all of our bits together, which we want because they, they swell out. Uh, it's going to be very uncomfortable for us. But also... Um, the lack of oxygen is a huge problem. And uh, also being in the uh, dark eye of space outside of the sun would freeze us um, pretty instantly. So I think you have only a minute, maybe a minute to survive in space um, without a suit. Unless you're in, uh, you know, like the space, um, uh, the traveling space. God damn it, what's wrong with my words? It's space station, the space station. If you're in the space station, which is pressurized and has oxygen, oxygen, of course, you can survive quite a long time. Marais, is there a minimum height requirement to be an astronaut? Yes. What is it? 62 and 75 inches. That's five foot two is minimum. Um, so Fiona, I hope you are either five foot 
two and above or or growing to be um, that if you're aiming to be an astronaut because without that I'm afraid you're stuck here on land. But as the space industry is always trying to tell, particularly here in Ireland, it is a really good idea if you're into space to to just keep pursuing that dream because there are so many jobs within the space world such as engineering or mission control or doing analog missions here there's so much work and research and cool things to do in the space industry that you really should just if you're interested in it regardless of your shape you should pursue it that's what I think um, that's it from us on this week's Future Brief hope you, hope you enjoyed the programme thanks to our team uh, they are the wonderful Marisa Sullivan John Byrne Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.